Uh, invite you to take out your Bibles and we're going to open to the book of Luke to start with. We are continuing in our Dear Theophilus series, but we're taking a little excursion, a little exploration this week and next week as we look into some concepts that Luke, that Luke brings out. Um, but if we don't pay attention, then we can miss some of the concepts. We can get lost, we can get confused. So it seems to make sense for us to stop just for a moment and have a, a couple of weeks where we kind of talk through what it is that Luke is talking about. Now, he's said a lot about the kingdom of God, starting all the way back at predicting the birth of Christ uh, when, we, when we see it in uh, Luke 2 that the kingdom is coming. He's already talking about that. When John and Jesus begin their ministry, they're already talking about it. But we've seen most recently in Luke chapter 19 uh, this, uh, this parable that Jesus shared. I'm going to read that with you today before we begin. We're going to start with verse 11 of Luke chapter 19. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten, ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy with a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it hid away, hidden away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man? taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have, will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is the word of God given through the people of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have revealed yourself in your word. You have given us a picture of your heart of your nature, and you have given us your Son. 
Father, as we open your word together, may we see your son. And until he returns, may we reveal him to the world. Bless this time together. Take away from us anything that would distract, discourage, or deceive us. We don't want to hear anyone's opinion. So, Father, help me to stay out of the way. We don't need to be guided by our framework. We need to be guided by the text of your word. So strip away from us the concepts the world has plugged in that we might see you. Father, help us to interpret your word by your spirit and by itself, not by our culture. We ask now that you would bless this time that we would gain from it, and that you would gain glory from it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That parable that we just read is a strange parable. We talked about it last week, so I won't spend a lot of time in it, but, but what we saw last week in this, and this is a pretty important development for us to grasp as Jesus is moving into Jerusalem, is that Jesus is laying out for them exactly what's going to happen. He is... Presently, at the, at the time of this uh, conversation, at the time of his giving this parable, about to enter Jerusalem, and having declared his identity and having proven his authority with signs and wonders and teaching that was not like the teaching of the religious leaders, Jesus established that he is the Messiah. Now, those who were with him, both his followers and the, the crowd who was coming around to see, expected something based on what they had always heard, based on the Old Testament prophecies, that the Messiah was going to come and <clears throat> excuse me, take over the throne of David. That the Messiah would come and reign and put all of Israel's enemies under his feet. So when Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, the people who are with him are like, whoa, it's time. Goodbye, Rome. He's here, and we're going to see this kingdom really take off. So he told this parable to essentially say, chill out, boys. It's not time yet. And he clarifies for them through this story, this fictional story, that makes a point that as he has done here, he... Let me restart this. In exactly the same way that was prophesied in the Old Testament, as he began in his first advent, Jesus came and then he left. He would be leaving, for us he's left. And he's gone to heaven to receive the crown which is already his, to have himself crowned king. Unfortunately for us, the people who should have received him, his subjects, didn't want him to be king. We struggle with that even now. We struggle with that even as his own people, where we keep trying to take back control. We want to be on the throne. Now, gratefully, by the Spirit of God, those who are in Christ have been regenerated by the Spirit of Christ, so we're able to see that we don't belong on the throne. That's why we struggle with what the world doesn't struggle with. They just have control. 
we want to give Christ control at the same time that we want to have our own control. There's a struggle within us. So Jesus goes to receive this crown, to receive the, the coronation, and as he does that, he gives work to his servants. He says, while I'm gone, do profitable work with the gifts that I've given you. Then he returns. And he settles accounts. And those who work faithfully for him are rewarded. And those who don't trust his character and do what they think best, they're reckoned as unbelievers. The same as the subjects who reject him as king. And he says, for those who reject me as king, bring them here. They get what they've got coming. So the good news of the kingdom is only good news if you're part of the kingdom. If you're part of this, this rogue kingdom now, and you want him to not be your king, which is by default all of us, until he changes us from within then the coming kingdom isn't good news for you. Because when he settles accounts, you'll be among those that he says, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Judgment comes with the kingdom. But for those who are on the team, those who are a part of the kingdom, we receive reward for faithful service. And he puts us in charge of the responsibilities of the new kingdom when all things are perfected. Now let's back up just a moment to Luke chapter 17. When we get to chapter 17, Jesus is dealing with, with some issues here and having, um, <clears throat> excuse me, having laid out how to come to him and healing a man with leprosy, in verse 20, the religious leaders are once again kind of trying to stick it to it. And they say, this is uh, verse 20, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, come on, Jesus, when's this kingdom coming? You keep talking about it. You can almost hear the mocking tone. They've seen enough. They want to shut him up. So let's see if we can make him look foolish. Jesus replied, coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Can't observe it, can't say, here it is, there it is, because it's already here. Wait a minute. What's he say next? The kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, so he's saying to the Pharisees, it's in your midst, it's here among you. Then he says to his disciples, the time is coming when you'll long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. It's funny, he just said people won't say that. And yet he, now he's saying they are going to say this. They're going to say the Messiah is here. Christ has come. This is the one. Cultists do that all the time. There are so many people who have claimed to be the Messiah who are not Christ. They're going to keep claiming it. Don't let them throw you off. Do not go running after them, he says in verse 23. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning 
which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He's already made it clear, repeatedly, again here in 17, and in the parable in 19, that this is not it. This is the beginning. He will leave. He will suffer and be rejected, even killed, raised on the third day. What you see now is not the kingdom, even though he just said to the Pharisees, the kingdom is in your midst. What does this tell us? If you're taking notes in your program, one of the things that you'll know right off the bat is that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. So he's saying it's in your midst, it's here. Many refer to this as the inauguration of the kingdom. Jesus in his first advent has come and he has established this new covenant. He is establishing it as he is here present with them. When he dies on the cross and he uh, pays for our sins and then he rises from the dead proving that the sacrifice was accepted. In other words, the check has cleared for all who will receive that gift. There is now a new kingdom in you. Heaven is in you by faith. That's always been God's plan. But now there is a not yet aspect of it. So he says to his disciples, this isn't all there is. There's more. The kingdom is beginning. He continually says the kingdom of God is near. We are closer than we were at the first. Notice, as we think of this kingdom of God being both now and not yet, notice our core reality for today. This draws everything together. This is where we are as a people. This is the part of the now and the not yet that we are in. Until Christ returns, His glory is revealed in His church. This is the question that comes up, or should come up for us. As he's talking about the kingdom, what's the difference between the kingdom and the church? Is this the kingdom? Is the church the kingdom? Is the kingdom the church? Is the church Israel? That's another question for another time. So as we see God's glory always, always revealed and displayed in his people, it's always been that way from the beginning. God gloried in his creation. And with all of the wonderful things he created, he created humanity alone in his image to reflect his glory. So our creative nature, the things that, that set us apart from the rest of his creation, are a reflection of himself. Once sin entered the system and we fell and we were separated from God forever, all of us as a human race all of us separated from God, spiritually dead from our conception. We were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. From that time on, his work to redeem us, to win a people for himself, has been for that same purpose, to reveal his glory in us. He gloried in Abraham and called him apart. 
And he started this nation in Abraham in miraculous ways so that Abraham could take no credit for it. It was all God, all the time. He gloried in the people of Israel and delivered them from Egypt while they had nothing. They were not trained warriors. They did not have weapons. They had no wealth. God delivered them from slavery. And because he's God, just to prove a point, he had the Egyptians give them all their stuff. Here, while you're leaving, take all of our gold. Take, our, take my car. Take my big screen TV. Take it all. Get, get all of it. God not only delivered them, but he prospered them through no strength of their own. All God, all the time, so that God alone would receive the glory, not Israel. In the time of the judges, Israel wandered from God. And every time things would get really, really bad, they would return. Because where else could they go? They would continue to try to do things in their own strength, in their own wisdom, and it would fail. They'd try to be like the nations around them. In other words, they would capitulate to the culture, to try to be like everybody else, and God would withdraw his hand of blessing. They'd fall flat on their faces. They would return to God, and God would say, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to deliver you. He would bring them into battles that they could not win and win them for him miraculously. All of God, not of Israel, all God, all the time, so that God would receive the glory and not Israel. So much so that when Gideon went with his army, he was going to go in and fight, and God said, no, you got too many people. And you send a few thousand of them home. No, still got too many. Send a few more thousand home. So he goes into battle with only 300 people. Impossible odds. Cannot possibly win. <laughs> and God has them win by breaking jugs. You know, it's just crazy stuff that God does. All God, all the time, all of God, none of them, so that God would receive the glory, not Israel. This continues over and over and over. We see this pattern. And when we see him send his son, the Messiah, along with all of the other reasons that in his infinite wisdom, God sired the Messiah himself by the Holy Spirit. Among these things must be this reality that we see over and over in Scripture. That Jesus was born not of a human father, so that man could not take credit for him. All God, all the time. Jesus is the God-man, and his glory, God's glory is perfectly revealed in Christ, who is the fullness of deity in bodily form, the invisible God made visible for us. God is glorified in Christ. And Jesus continued to tell this story over and over again. Look, you're not good enough. You have to be perfect, and you can't be perfect. Therefore, repent. It's as simple as that and as hard as that. Stop doing you. Start following the king. Seek mercy, and God is merciful. Repeatedly, Jesus says things like, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. He gives these constant pictures, and we see it over and over in Luke. Luke really highlights this, that 
Nobody is too far gone to receive mercy from God. And nobody is so good that they don't need mercy from God. As much as you might think you've got life figured out, you don't. As much as you might think that you are righteous and good, you're not. Isaiah says your righteousness, your very best, the very godliest, most holy you can possibly be when you're at your best behavior, maybe you're at church, you've got on your, your nice clothes and your happy smile and everybody sees your very best. So that's like filthy, stinking rags compared to the standard of God. All of us fall short. So that salvation then is all of God and not of us because we have nothing to offer. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says it's by grace that you're saved. Grace being, of course, unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor from God. God looking well on you despite the fact that you are wretched, blind, and poor. You have nothing to offer. You are naked and ashamed before the king, and yet he chooses to give you grace. It's by grace you're saved through faith. How do you get hold of that grace? By trusting the grace. By saying, Lord, I'm yours. I have nothing else. I have no place else to turn. All I can do is fall on my face before you and beg for the mercy of the king. I know that I'm a sinner. Because of my sin, I can't have a relationship with you. I'm separated from you. But I'm trusting that Jesus has done everything. That the king of glory has come down to pay for my sin against himself. That's how we receive it. Grace through faith. And even the faith is not of yourself. It's not like you're some great person. Wow, I'm so holy because I believe it and you didn't believe it. See how much better I am than you? None of that. So there's no room for boasting. All God. None me. Not one bit. But God in this receives glory from his people that has always been the way. And now, in this church age, in the time that we're in now, between the cross and the crown, we reveal him to the world. Our core reality again, until Christ returns, his glory is revealed in his church. Until Christ returns, his glory is revealed in his church. Say it with me. Until Christ returns, His glory is revealed in His church. I've got so many scriptures I want to take you to. I'm going to really work hard to stay on script here so that we're, we're able to get done at a reasonable time. But if you read any of the passages that are, are listed there, you should see this. If you read the scriptures without anybody guiding you, you should see this. The scriptures tell a story from Genesis to Revelation of God's glory. All of it pointing to God. The God-centeredness of God is a really important thing for us to grasp. Everything is for His glory. And the things that He does for our ultimate good, even the suffering that we face, are designed to get us to a place where we recognize that His glory is our ultimate good. That's what we were created for. So when everything in your life goes to pot, as my grandma used to say, 
when everything falls apart, God's using it. He's using it to bring you to your knees because only on your knees do you find out, do you realize, do you recognize that you're a beggar before the king. You're a criminal before the judge. And you have nothing to offer. Again, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Everything else is him. Until he returns, his glory is revealed in his church. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. As we saw in Luke 17, it started, it's not finished. Notice this. The church exists to represent and reflect Christ in the world. The church exists to represent and reflect Christ in the world. We're going to bounce around a bit today, so we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You may recognize this if you were here last week as our memory verse from last week. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We did our memorizing from the New Living Translation. I'll be reading it from the New International Version as we normally do. Having, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, having spoken of the, the ministry of the law, the Old Testament covenant, now Paul is describing the greater revelation of God's glory that we see in Christ. All right, I got to read the whole thing. So starting with verse 7. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. Moses went up on the mountain, you'll remember, and received the law. And when he came down off of the mountain, he glowed like he'd been in a nuclear accident or something. So he's got this, this glorious radiation from himself that he covers with a veil. They could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? The ministry of the Spirit brings righteousness. Now, pause for just a moment to think this through. How does it bring righteousness? In whom does it bring righteousness? The ministry of the Spirit is to the church, the people of God. It does not bring righteousness to those who are not reborn, not regenerated in Christ. The world does not benefit directly. They benefit indirectly. They do not benefit directly from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you are not in Christ, you do not have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, your entire guidance system for life is all flesh, all human. That creates a problem. But he says, if the ministry that brought condemnation, the law, was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious, the law, has no glory now in comparison with surpassing glory. And if what was transitory, passing, came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, <clears throat> but their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. 
that's not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away, the ministry of the Spirit. <clears throat> Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It's removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory. If you have the newer NIV, it probably says contemplate. We all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The church exists to reflect Christ in the world, couple of pages to, or maybe one page, depending on how thick your pages are, uh, to chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Another familiar passage for us. We see that reflection that we are here to reflect His glory in an ever-increasing way as we're being transformed into His likeness. But notice this. Oh man, starting in verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is unseen. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and, note this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. In other words, he's delayed the judgment of sin until after Christ has come and given the new covenant so that we can have hope and faith through him in Him, for Him, to be saved by Him, rather than facing the judgment that we rightly deserve. And He has committed to us, verse 19, He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The church exists to represent Christ in the world as an embassy. Now, just a quick note on, on an embassy. The embassy has ambassadors. So it exists as a unit, as an embassy, but also that nation which is represented by the embassy, is represented individually by its ambassadors. Primarily, as a unit, the U.S. embassy in whatever country, 
but also those members of the embassy, individual ambassadors, staff members, all those who belong to it, also represent the kingdom, if you will, of the United States. Here, as Christ's ambassadors in this world, we live in a foreign land. We are not home yet. We don't belong here as citizens. We are here as aliens and strangers, if you will. We're here as representatives of our home country. The church exists to represent and reflect Christ in the world. Notice also that the church reveals now what the kingdom will perfect later. The church reveals now what the kingdom will perfect later. 1 John 3, 2 tells us that we are not yet what we will be. We're, we're getting started. We're in Him. We have this identity that we are now citizens of heaven. We belong there, but we're not there yet. And we're not finished. God's still working on us. How many of you are glad that God's still working on you? Man, if I were finished and this is it, <laughs> that'd be kind of depressing. But we're not yet what we will be. In Romans 8, 18, it says that the, the suffering that we face now isn't even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The glory will be future revealed in us, in His church. So all the suffering we go through now, labor through tears to lift high His banner, it's nothing. It's not even worth thinking about by comparison to the great surpassing glory that will be revealed in us. The church reveals now what the kingdom will perfect later. Again, until Christ returns, His glory is revealed in His church. Now, there are several ways that we see this. There are, we've always seen God revealing His glory through His people. And while in the end, when His church, His people are perfected, in the coming kingdom, when he actually reigns, he rules directly, all opponents, all opposition wiped out, all that is less than perfect, all that is not eternal will be consumed and destroyed, all sin destroyed, all pain, suffering, death destroyed, and we will be perfected at that time, we'll be with him. What a glorious idea. In the meantime, we are his ambassadors here to represent and reflect him, not perfectly, but increasingly like him. We are not perfect representations of Christ. He is the perfect representation of the Father, and yet we are imperfect reflections, like in a dirty mirror. One day will be like Him because we'll see Him face to face. What a, what a powerful thing John writes in that first letter. We're, we're not all that we will be, but one day we will be like Him because we'll be face to face with Him, fully and completely changed. In the meantime, Christ reveals His glory through His church 
first off, in our salvation. Now, there are a lot of uh, passages that I would like to read for you. I'm going to focus on one right now. As I've mentioned, throughout human history, God has revealed himself. He has worked to redeem his people. He has saved Israel. He has saved individuals. He is saving his church. All of his accord, none of theirs. Israel is notoriously unfaithful over and over and over again. And every time I read Israel's history, it's like I'm looking in a mirror. That's me. I am specifically, embarrassingly unfaithful. And the, the more things go well, the easier it is for me to forget that I owe him everything. And I start to get caught up in this life. And I get really concerned about how my sports teams are doing or what the weather is like or how healthy I am or if my clothes are wrinkled or whatever. I get all caught up in stuff here. Much too much. Not that any of those things are bad. They're just small. They're really, really small. And just like Israel, I get caught up in small things. I'm guessing you do too. But God always, always does His work regardless of whether or not we deserve it. In, in Romans chapter 9, Paul is making the comparison of God's sovereign choice of his people, even looking at Jacob and Esau, as a, as a comparison to his sovereign choice now of his church. We're going to pick up with, um, we'll pick up with verse 6. Having, having expressed the failure of Israel to believe, and Paul's just anguish over this he's he's just wiped out in thinking about the his own people the people he loves being separated cut off from Christ even even cursed he wishes that if he could trade that he might and cut off instead of his people that would be his his prayer yet it's not so and he praises the glory of Israel as God had chosen them. But then he goes into this idea of how salvation works. It's all for his glory. Verse 6, it's not as though God failed regarding Israel. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. We talked about this with Zacchaeus in, in uh, the first part of Luke let me try that again. With Zacchaeus in the first part of Luke chapter 19. It's a new mouth. I'm still trying to figure out how to work it. On the contrary, he says, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father, the twins, Jacob and Esau, were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, notice this next phrase, I would underline it, because this is our point. In order that God's purpose in election might stand, 
not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? We do say that a lot. We reject the scriptures because we don't like them. We think God's unjust. That's not fair. It can't work that way. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Very much like he said to Job, I'm God. You're not. Tell me, if you think you're at my level, tell me how I created all the world. Tell me what's going on out here that's so far beyond your ability to understand. Can you do that, Job? I'm God. Sit down and relax. I'll tell you how it is. God never explains to Job, and he doesn't explain to Moses. He simply says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, verse 16, therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The same reason he raised up Pharaoh to be hardened, the same reason that he delivered the Israelites, the same reason that he saves each one of us, undeserving though we are, is so that his purpose would stand. That he might display his power in us. As he said to Pharaoh, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who's able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? It doesn't matter how you're born. It doesn't matter what your tendencies are. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? And he gives this rhetorical logic here. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, his church, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And then he references Hosea, an interesting book. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. In the very place where it is said to them, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Man. So Hosea is a prophet. God commands him to marry a prostitute, a woman of ill repute. This woman of bad reputation, an unfaithful character, runs around on him. Not a good thing for a marriage. They conceive children. He, he redeems her. He brings her back. He, they have children together. She's running around while they have these children. And God commands him to name these children not mercy, no mercy, not mercy my people 
How do you want to name your kids that? It's not great. I'm, I'm thinking they're probably getting to high school thinking, great, thanks, Mom and Dad. I really appreciate that. Think of the nicknames you get out of that one, Stacy. She's always talking about her nickname in high school. So anyway, as we're looking at this, God shows his glory through Hosea and his wife. Her name's Gomer, not Gomer Pyle, right? And through these children who bear prophetic names of rejection because that's what Israel has been to God. Unfaithful, unloved, rejected. And yet, God, through Hosea, in his love for Gomer, shows his people exactly how his steadfast love works. Hosea redeems Gomer. He actually buys her back from the traffickers who have her and makes her his bride, unfaithful though she has been. God does that with Israel. And he brings her back to himself and says, you're not my people, but now you are because I am making you my people. All of God, none of Israel. Just as he does with us. In the church, God reveals his glory through us in our salvation. The fact that it is by grace, through faith, and not of yourselves. So there's no room for boasting. There's no works involved. There's no holiness on your part that earns you God's favor. But there's more. It's not just the salvation of individuals. We often focus that. But notice that he uses terms related to Israel, a nation. Not just individuals. Over and over again, and we'll develop a little bit of this next week, We'll talk about baptism next week and, and the introduction uh, of believers into the church. But as we talk about all of this, the church is a body. The terms that are used for the church are the bride of Christ, a body, a temple that we're being built together into a temple. And the focus isn't just on the individual stones that build the temple, but on the temple itself. The focus is not the individual citizens of Israel, but Israel as a nation. We as a church, unfortunately, we've, we've made this so individualistic that we don't think it's important. Whatever, you know, we come to church when we don't have something else going on, right? There are always things that seem to come up that are more important. Well, I went to church on Sunday. I really don't have time to go to any Bible study during the week or to get together with other Christians to pray. I've got things on my agenda. We've deprioritized because it's just me and Jesus. We got our own thing going, right? That was a song during the Jesus movement back in the 70s. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. You know, great, but that's not the church. The church is us together as a team, as a unit, as a body. We were playing a, a great game that we invented for our family reunion yesterday. And my nephew Josh and my sister-in-law Jessica were on my team. And uh, it was, we were having fun, goofing off, and they were messing with each other and specifically antagonizing one another, not passing the ball and all that. Playing as individuals, not as a team, not as a unit. Now, in the backyard at a reunion, we can have fun and joke about that. If you are playing on a competitive sports team and you're not playing together as a team, you can get very, very frustrated. 
if you're talking about the eternal reality of the church revealing God's glory, we must be a team. We must be a unit. But we cannot do what we've been called to do. Christ reveals His glory through His church in our salvation. We're going to pick up the pace just slightly. He reveals His glory through His church in our faithfulness. In our faithfulness. In the parable that we read in the middle of chapter 19 of the book of Luke, we see that there are different levels of production among the servants. And Jesus doesn't condemn them for producing less. He doesn't reward them for talent. He rewards them for faithfulness. The only one condemned is the one who didn't trust the character of the king enough to actually do what he was told to do. He tried to protect himself. He based his actions on his own understanding rather than leaning into what the king had required. I'm going to give you this stuff. I'm going to have you put this stuff to work. And when I come back, we'll settle up. He didn't trust the character of the king. He leaned on his own understanding. It is crucial for us to recognize that God is active in his church and the glory of Christ is revealed in our faithfulness to him. It's not a matter of how many people we have in our congregation. It's not a matter of how effective you are, how, how many people you win to Christ as you share the gospel. What matters is that you do. That you tell the story. We cannot please God by doing our own thing. Let me say that again. We cannot please God by doing our own thing. The glory of Christ is revealed through His church in our faithfulness. Next, we see that, the, that Christ reveals His glory through His church in our love. In our love. John 13, verses 34 and 35 speak about this love one another idea. If you love me, love one another. And the world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. What is love? No songs, all of you. I see it coming. What is love? Love is putting someone else's needs ahead of mine. It really boils down to that. Everything else that we make it into, those are all nice little pieces, but what really defines the agape kind of love that we see in 1 Corinthians 13, the kind of love that reflects the love of God, is to, by choice, an act of volition, an act of the will, to choose to value you, even when you're not very lovable. To put your needs ahead of my needs. That's love. That's the picture within the church that we're called to. If you want people to see Christ, love one another in the church. See that person next to you in the chair as valuable. Prefer them over yourself. Look to their needs first. In 1 Corinthians 13, we see that picture and. And I'm not going to have you turn there because you've heard it at every wedding that you've ever been to. But it's not about weddings. It's Paul describing to the church in Corinth 
who can't get along with one another because they're all jealous of one another's gifts. That's not fair. He's got 10 minas. She's got five minas. I just got one mina. What's going on? This isn't fair. I want to be the one who stands up and sings. I want to be the one who does this or that or the other thing. And Paul says, wait a minute. You've missed the boat. We're one body. You can't function as an individual finger or an individual ear or an individual liver. You can't do any of those things on your own. We only function together. Therefore, the most excellent way is when we choose to put the needs of others, the needs of the body, ahead of our own needs. That's his whole point. Let's go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 3, and we'll see this command repeated. It's interesting that this is the same John that, that wrote the Gospel of John, John the beloved disciple perhaps the closest friend of Christ on earth during his ministry. When you get to 1 John chapter 3, it's way toward the back. If you get to Revelation, you're just a little bit too far, but the books are really skinny, so don't, don't turn too far backward. There are three letters, 1, 2, 3, John. In 1 John, looking at verse 11 and following, we see this picture same guy that recorded John 13, 34, and 35, hearing Jesus say, if you want them to know you're my disciples, love one another. Here's what he says. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Same heart as Cain. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? It sounds a lot like James in his, in his letter, saying stop telling people that you hope they're doing well if you're not going to help them. Dear children, let us, love, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Christ reveals his glory through his church in our love. Next we see that he reveals his glory through his church in our holiness. Since we're back toward the back of your Bible, turn just slightly to the left to the book of 1 Peter. If you get to James and Hebrews, you went just a hair too far. Peter says this in verse 13 and following. Therefore, with, with minds that are alert and fully sober, hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. Notice there is still a coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Turn the page to chapter 2. This is our memory verse for today. 
This encapsulates much of what we're trying to get across. Verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. If we had time, I would read that from several translations because each of the nuances that come out in the different English translations are powerful as we declare His excellencies. Christ reveals His glory through His church in our holiness. We also see that He reveals His glory through His church in our perseverance. In our perseverance. 1 Peter 2.21 tells us that Christ suffered. When we face suffering, when we go through hard times, we should remember that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should walk in His steps. Suffering is the lot of the Christ follower. That's how His church demonstrates His glory through perseverance. Turn back to the left and find 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1. Starting with verse 3, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love, the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Remember we talked about the love in the church? Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. The Thessalonian church had fallen on hard times. People are coming against them. And as he sees their love increasing, he's boasting among others about their perseverance, their faithfulness in all of the difficulties. God's glory is revealed in this way. Verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment, God's evaluation is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. This is a powerful reality the perseverance of the church reveals the glory of God as He changes us within and we begin to recognize that the glory that will be revealed in us is way bigger than any suffering we could face on this earth. And when we remember that we only have life to begin with because of His death on a cross for us, our perspective begins to change. Everything takes on a new tone. Christ reveals His glory through His church and our perseverance. We see also that He reveals His glory through His church and our testimony. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 tells us that Jesus, having been given all authority, commands us, it's not an optional thing, He commands us, He commissions us to go into the whole world and make disciples. In other words, to create not just believers, but followers those who follow in His steps, involving all the other things that we've seen here. He says to do this, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about baptism next week. But this idea of telling forth, proclaiming the good news, is part of our testimony. The baptism itself 
is our testimony. It's a public declaration that I have been buried with Christ. I died with Him. And I've been raised to a new life in Him. Now, for the first time, able to live for God, not for myself. Turn, oh man. For the sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn there. But man, if you get a chance, check out Colossians 1. You can read the whole chapter. You can read the whole book. It's, a, it's 15 minutes. You can read the whole book. 15 for me, 5 for regular readers. But 15 for me because I'm slow. But we see the supremacy of Christ in the midst of this and what He has done for us in saving us, in drawing us to Himself is worth telling and the testimony of the church is where the glory is revealed as we share the truth of who He is, as we declare the salvation and the mercy that He's had on us, not because of anything in us, but according to His mercy He saved us. As we in our testimony, demonstrate our faithfulness and perseverance. As we tell our story of love for one another, and we tell it not with words, but with actions, our testimony reveals His glory. Christ reveals the glory of his, through His church in our testimony. We see also that He reveals His glory through His church in our doctrine. Doctrine is crucial. In Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus thanks the Lord, thanks the Father, that you have hidden these mysteries of the gospel from the wise and learned, but you've revealed them to little children. Knowledge comes from God, and God is glorified, not in our education, not in our smarts, but in our apprehension of the truth of biblical doctrine when we know what the Scriptures say and we understand what the Scriptures mean because we have relied upon the Spirit and applied ourselves diligently, He is glorified. I'm going to have you turn one last passage here as we wrap this up. Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, we see this doctrinal concept lead into our next point. So we'll see the doctrine built up as we are built up in the faith. When we see that term, the faith, in that way, it's referring to the teachings, the doctrine, the understandings of the church according to the scriptures. And we see here in this passage, Ephesians 4, we're going to look at verses 11 to 16, that not only does Christ reveal His glory through His church in our doctrine, but He reveals His glory through His church in our unity. In our unity. Follow along with me in verse uh, 11. So Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up Note this, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Until we become everything that we are meant to be in a perfect reflection of Him. This happens as we are built up in our knowledge of the Son of God 
in our unity in the faith, in other words, the more, the closer we get to Christ, it's kind of like we're climbing a pyramid, right? We might be far apart as we're immature, but as we grow more mature, we closer and closer together because we get closer and closer to the head. And as we all grow up into him who is the head, we're going to find out, hey, guess what? I was wrong. You were wrong. And it won't matter because he's always right. And the closer we get to Christ, the more unified we get. That happens through the teaching and the wrestling with sound doctrine, biblical theology. What does the Bible say? How do we work that out? Christ reveals his glory through his church in our unity. In fact, in John 17, what is often referred to as Christ's high priestly prayer, he prays specifically for that, for the unity of the church. He's about to go to the cross, and the last thing, the most crucial thing on his mind that he can pray for is, Lord, make them one as you and I are one. He prays for the unity of the church and he specifies not only for these here with me, but for all those who will later believe. That includes us. There aren't a lot of places in Scripture that specifically point to us and say, yeah, I'm talking to you. Jesus was praying for you and me that we would be united, one. Our unity that grows out of our sound doctrine. How do we respond to, to this idea that His glory is revealed in His church until He returns? First, seek mercy from the King. In other words, be saved and be baptized. If you have given yourself to Christ, then the next step, when you've chosen Him and you've received this grace, you've come to Him as a beggar before the King, is to declare that to everybody through the universal symbol that has been present throughout Christendom. Throughout the history of the church, people have signified this as commanded by Christ, as clarified by Paul, with this immersion in water to say, yes, I believe and I have received his death and therefore I have received his life. Be saved. Be baptized. Next, if, if you have established that relationship with the king, then it's time to join the army. It's time to commit to the team. Take seriously the call to be the church, that we are one, that we are his bride, that he's passionate about us. Seek mercy from the king, commit to the team, prioritize the family. We talk a lot about family first, don't we? We hear that all the time. See it in television, PSAs, you, you know, family matters, family first, family first. Your eternal family, the family of God, needs to be a priority in your life. If you are the church, if you are in Him, then you need to recognize that He hasn't called you to some vague concept of the universal church. Yes, we're part of a universal, invisible church. But you don't get to have relationships with everybody in Hungary and Korea and Costa Rica. You get relationships with people here in your town, in this church. So commit to the family. Be a member of the church. We haven't had membership classes in a little while. We'll restart those soon. But become a member of the church just the same as you get married to the one that you want to spend your life in with. You commit to the family. And then rejoice. 
rejoice as the bride waiting for her groom. You're so excited about the wedding supper of the Lamb, recognizing that He is coming for you and He is as so much more in love with you than your mind can take on. You probably know that I'm crazy about my wife because I've probably said it at least once. And as I was, we were talking about songs and, and trying to figure out how do I convey this idea that Jesus rejoices in the church the same as I do in my wife. Every time I see her, every time I hear stories about how wonderful she is at work or whatever she's good at, baking pies is one of my favorite skills. When my wife does something well, I receive glory from that. It's a reflection on me. I don't... I don't even do anything for it. But she's my bride. I glory in her. And when I think of her coming home from work, I get excited. And when, I, when she's not here next you know, few weeks from now in the fair time, y'all know I get depressed at you know, opening and closing because she's not here. And I about can't handle it because I love to see her. And I look down and I'm like, oh, my wife's in the front row. She's not even asleep. It's great. Jesus feels more passionately about his church than I do about my wife. More passionately than I can about my children. More passionately than you care about anything. Jesus exalts in his bride. Shouldn't you be overwhelmed with joy that the king of creation thinks of you, thinks of us in that way? If you want to glorify God, relax in that. Exult in that. Be satisfied and completed in that. Rejoice that you are his bride. Until Christ returns, his glory is revealed in his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for allowing us the privilege of being yours. <coughs> Father, the fact that you desire to show us mercy is unthinkable. Not only are we poor, wretched, blind, and naked, but we're actually criminals. We're actually traitors to the <coughs> crown yet you don't desire to judge us. You don't even rejoice in the death of the wicked. But you receive glory as you show mercy to us. As you are both just and the one who justifies, you make us adulterous prostitutes that we are. You make us your bride. How beautiful that is. Father, make us now, the bride that you long for, the bride that is faithful, that is as passionate about you as we can possibly be, teach us to prioritize your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand, please.